You are listening to the To and Out CFL Podcast, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. Back then, they appreciated the punt, you know. Yeah, they did. (laughs) Grab some poutine and a double-double. It's time for the To and Out CFL Podcast. He's got it! Oh, baby! Every week, Travis Kura. That's Grey yeah. Cup me, which is a different person. And Brazilian Tide. Hunters are people, too. Talk fantasy football, bring you the latest in CFL news, and sprinkle in a little bit of nonsense. Oh, nearly intercepted, and it is! And it's over! Ready, set, hook! And we are a part of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm Travis Kura, and Brazilian Tide will be back for Thursday's episode of the show as we get you ready for week two. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed week one. Author R.C. Christensen, the author of the book Border Boys, How Americans from Border Colleges Helped Western Canada to Win a Football Championship, is on the show today. I had so much fun chatting with him, and I'm having a lot of fun reading the book. If I'm honest, I'm in the middle of chapter two right now as we get into this time machine and Go back to the 1930s and talk about how football was then. This episode of Two and Out is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Alberta Blue Cross understands that running a small business is tough, and they understand that business owners in Alberta are busy. Let Alberta Blue Cross give you peace of mind with a group benefit plan. They offer health dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. Alberta Blue Cross Group Benefit Plans are easy to manage anywhere, anytime, and on any device, making it easy for you and your employees to access. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. And in a special edition of the Two and Out CFL podcast today, I'm welcoming welcoming author R.C. Christensen, the author of the Border Boys book. Well, I'll say it. I got the book right now. Border Boys, How Americans from Border Colleges Helped Western Canada Win a Football Championship. Thanks for coming on the show, Ryan. Ah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, uh, I'll just read your bio that's uh, in the back of the book here. R.C. Christensen is an educator with a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from Minnesota State University in Moorhead. He is a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association and has more than 30 years experience as a journalist, technical writer, creative writer, editor, and publisher. Now, you're coming to us from Fargo, North Dakota. I got to ask... Where your relationship with the CFL and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers started? Okay, well, um, I'm trying to remember how many years ago. I think it was, oh gosh, maybe a good six, seven years ago now. Uh, I came to the realization that Fargo is approximately the same distance from Winnipeg as it is from Minneapolis, and I'm a longtime Minnesota Vikings fan. And but I had an interest in the CFL, and uh, I found out that CFL games were available through the ESPN streaming app. And I thought, you know, I could become a fan, and it just makes sense. So I become a, a Blue Bombers fan, and um, I started going to games. And uh, it's been a couple of years now, of course, since I've been yeah. to a game, but um, <laughs> because of COVID and everything, but um. 
but yeah, so I count myself as a sort a new a newer uh, Blue Bombers fan. When did you know that the story of this 1935 Grey Cup team from Winnipeg was one that you needed to tell and preserve? Um, <clears throat> well, it, I wasn't planning on writing a book about the 1935 team originally uh what it what happened was because i'm from fargo north dakota um my radar was on high alert when i was up in winnipeg at a game in 2018 when they inducted a guy named fritz hansen into their ring of honor and um and they said he's from north dakota state university and i thought oh oh, i hadn't heard of that guy and and then i looked into it a little more, found out he's in the Canadian football hall of fame and, and inaugural class and all that. And as I learned more and more about him, I thought, well, why don't I know about this guy? Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, uh, he was pretty incredible. And, and I felt like if I don't know anything about this guy, I'm sure a lot of other people don't. And, and I, and I'm, I'm right about that. A lot of people around here don't know about Fritz Hansen. So I decided, you know, his story needs to be told, but then it was more than just his story. I discovered who else, uh, was part of the overall story. And then I started to learn about how uh, Canadian football was at a tur- kind of a turning point there, right in the, in the, in the early 1930s uh, in all sorts of ways. And that, and that the Grey Cup itself was a very significant accomplishment uh, when Winnipeg won that cup uh, for the West, essentially. And all of that together, it was uh, it was sort of unstoppable. There was no way I was not going to finish that book. Well, yeah, I think that's that's so cool that you've become, you know, a fan of Winnipeg in Canada. But players from your stomping grounds where you live were so important to them winning that first Grey Cup championship back in 1935. Uh I, I got the book in my hands. I'm just getting into it. And I have to say, early on in the book, it almost feels like a handbook of the, the, the era. And you talk about the turning point in Canadian football at the time. It, it Like there wasn't a huddle. There was just starting the forward pass. It's, it's really fascinating to go back in time to that era. Yeah. So, uh, if, if people don't know, uh, it wasn't until 1929 that uh, Canadian football adopted the forward pass. And, um, and of course, it was 1906 when they did in American football. So that, you know, that's a good, you know, good stretch in between the, those two systems. And when they did it in 29, uh, you know, they did it with lots of restrictions like it was uh, in, in the American game. Uh, there was a lot of restrictions early on. But then the, it was weird because they... In 1930, the Canadian, and it was called the Canadian Rugby Union at the time, yeah. uh, took a step backward and actually made the pass less of a pass. They made it more of an onside pass where you could throw it forward or backward, but it couldn't cross the goal line. And then finally, in 1931, they adopted a forward ba- pass that was um, pretty much a mirror image of the American intercollegiate forward pass, with some differences, of course, but uh, it finally resembled what was going on down in the, in the States. I'm trying to wrap my head around like some of the le- rules now. Like I think, for example, two consecutive um, 
incomplete passes between the twenties or something is a penalty. And if you're inside the right. 25, it better be a touchdown. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, yeah. And, and if I, and I don't know which, which exact version of the pass, but if the, if, you know, if it was thrown into the end zone incomplete, then it was a, a turnover. Yeah. So, so <laughs> like, I, I'm trying to imagine this now, and absolutely wild. Um, mm-hmm. In an overall sense, how how important do you think it is to have stories like this preserved? Because I imagine you were digging through newspaper archives to um, get the research for this book, and now newspapers have changed so much like i, mm. I it, it feels so different now um mm-hmm. and to be able to preserve this story in this era i think it's actually pretty special well and you know i'm actually fortunate that you know in recent years technology has improved and there's been a lot of digital scanning of older newspapers yeah. and there's yeah. a lot more available but not only the older newspapers, like when you think of a, a daily newspaper, which were uh, hugely valuable in this uh, research, but also a lot of schools have uh, digitally preserved their old student newspapers. And so in the, uh, what I do in this book is I lead up to the Grey Cup year and yeah. then I, then I re- retell the Grey Cup year. And in those years leading up to it, I follow the careers of the American players that, that played on that great cup team. And, and because I had access also to the student newspapers, um, I was able to get, you know, a lot uh, more valuable information, but what I'm really lucky is that, you know, back when it was newspapers, the written word, that was, that was how you got your information. And, and the sports writers at the time, you know, they, you know, they shared more than just, you know, I mean, they didn't share as many stats as they do now, in fact, but they shared a lot of the sort of story that was going on. And so I was really just fortunate to I hit a gold mine of really good sports writing that 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 wasn't just inundated with, you know, fantasy football yeah. statistics. When you when you dug in at first, where you're like, oh, boy, this is this is a lot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if if you look in the bibliography, I think it's two thousand. Oh, I know. Uh, sources. <laughs> and another thing that I found wild is just a few weeks ago, the league and the players signed a new collective bargaining agreement, and one of the issues at the forefront was Canadian jobs. Yep. And back in the thirties. When American players started to cross the border and take part in football in Canada, that was a big point of contention, as was it it was almost like professionalism was a dirty word as well uh, Mm -hmm. at the beginning of that era. And it's fascinating to me that Canadian jobs are still almost trying to be as protected now as they were in the 30s. Well, of course, in the 30s, there was a little bit different dynamic going on. They had the Great Depression, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so part of bringing American players up there wasn't just the the job of of uh, playing the football games, but they, in order to attract the American players up there, they found them other jobs as well. So okay. they were taking not only a player's job on the team, but they were also taking a job in the community. And so um, it was kind of a double whammy that way. 
And, uh, but yeah, there, the, you know, the importation of, they called them imports, the uh, importation of American players started before the 1930s, but it was sort of hit or miss here and there. Uh, but then um, right around the 19, early 1930s there, um, it increased um, more, especially actually in Saskatchewan. It was, it was Saskatchewan that was doing it the most uh, before Winnipeg ever did. And that's one of the reasons why Winnipeg upped its game and getting uh, more um, significant American players is because Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan was doing it. And a lot, and a lot of people don't remember that, you know, they, they hear about the Americans helping the, the Winnipeg team in 1935, but that year, Winnipeg played um, Regina, and I said Saskatchewan, but you know they were the Regina Rough Riders mm-hmm. at the time. But they played Regina in the the Western semifinal. Well, Regina had eight Americans, and 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 Winnipeg had nine. So it wasn't like yeah. <clears throat> just the fact that they had Americans was the reason that they won. They had better Americans, but they also had better Canadians on their team. So, and that's a, that's another book. Cause I'm a, I'm a Rough Rider fan and it's, it's so amazing to see that that rivalry goes back that far. And the reason that the riders or one of the reasons that they first wore green and white is because of Winnipeg. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Forgetting right? those old uniforms. It's incredible. Yeah. Winnipeg was, was white and green and, and Saskatchewan was red and black and they came in, uh, and they forget their uniforms, and so they're playing St. John's um, Rugby Football Club from Winnipeg at the time. And, and St. John's is, I think, gold and black. And uh, and yeah, Regina had to wear Winnipeg's uniforms because they didn't have anything else to wear. So here they are in green and white. But that was the only time they wore that. You know, yeah. it was, and and there's no connection between the green and white at that point and the green and white that came later, there was no cognitive connection between those two things. It was total just happenstance. Yeah. That, that, that's an amazing story. And I think it's, it's also a sign of the era when you can call a team, the Winnipeg Winnipegs. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And some of the names that uh, you see what else struck you about the differences from then to now? For example, I see somebody that would play on the line or the end, uh, you know, they're, they're 170 pounds. And now <laughs> you put a probably six more inches and another hundred yeah. pounds on those players on the line or more than that. And it's incredible to how much of the game that a player would actually play then. Yeah, well, you know, of course, it's all relative. When you're talking about weights, I mean, they, everyone got bigger at the same time. So, yeah, you know, yeah. they were they were just smaller people, you know, playing against smaller people at that time. But, um, but yeah, you're talking about playing both ways, right? And 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 you know, there was not specialization or anything like that. I mean, there was specialization to a point, but they weren't like only on defense or only on offense. You know, they they had to play yeah. uh, both ways, and so. Um, yeah, I don't know. And then I had to learn a lot about uh, Canadian football in terms of, you know, that position, the flying wing. What was that? You know, and, and, right. And, and and they and, and they use different terminology back then. Um, they were there's transitioning to the to the American terminology for a lot of things. But, you know, they called the uh, 
the center, the the snap back, and then the, and then it was um, inside wing was the guard, and the middle wing was the tackle, and I think it was the outer wing. I, I can't remember for sure if that was the end, but anyways, um, you know, different different terminology going. And then of course, and not a fullback, it was a, a center back or a center halfback or something like that. There was that. all so, sorts right? of it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you just sort of run into these things and you have to learn to get to get things straight in your head, you know, yeah. about what's going on. Well, and then along those lines, I need to share something that that um, about the scoring it differences between uh, the, the Canadian and, and the American systems because it comes into play. Um, so, of course, at that time, the Canadian system was still on the five points for a touchdown, which was the case for uh, American football up until, um, I don't know if it was 1912 when they changed it to six points. It was used to be five points as well for American football for touchdowns. Um, and, you know, part of what's in this book is how the Canadian, uh, uh, the, the Winnipeg club in, 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 uh, had to play teams from across the border because what was happening in during those early 1930s is is the teams in Winnipeg were folding uh the the longtime St. John's uh rugby football club which which had been dominant all of a sudden just quit they, they were gone and so the Winnipeg rugby football club absorbed those guys and um, and so they were getting down to and then the University of Manitoba, which would play at the senior level against the Winnipeg team, because remember, universities would play club teams back then. They dropped football for a couple of years. So what you had was Winnipeg pretty much having to fill it, you know, fill its schedule with college teams mm. from south of the border. And so that's why they played University of North Dakota. That's why they played Concordia College of Moorhead. Um, you know, other teams, uh, and then also then University of Manitoba restarted its football, uh, in 1934, I believe. And, um, and when they restarted it, they actually restarted it as an American football team. Mm. In other words, they played by American rules and they, they played teams across the border. Uh, teams like Mayville State University and uh, or uh, State College and uh, Jamestown College in North Dakota and Minot uh, State College and you know other other you know uh, teacher schools uh, in, in the area and um, so part of that is <laughs> more than once when Winnipeg played an American college team. You know, they would always play half and half rules. So they'd play right. like one half, one half by Canadian rules and the other half by American intercollegiate rules. But for some reason, it's when the Winnipeg scored under their own rules, they seemed to score extra points. They scored six points on touchdowns. Oh, <laughs> <instead of> five. <laughs> and and. There's no explanation for it. It's not like, you know, it, it's not, it, you know, who knows if the refs just sort of screwed up mm. um, or, or what the deal was. But in one of those situations, Concordia came back from the game and, there's, and they're, and they're kind of shaking their head and they're bewildered and said, don't you think we should have tied that game? Because you know, we, they had only lost by one uh, or, or one point or, or something. Wow. But the, 
but but Winnipeg had, was awarded a six point touchdown yeah. when they were playing under Canadian rules. So you know, <laughs> there might have been some shenanigans going on there. <laughs> that is awesome. I. Why did you think the West struggled? There's probably a multitude of reasons for this. Uh, the West struggled against the East so much. And I, I think it was, was it 1934-35 when uh, Winnipeg became the first team to beat an Eastern team? Never mind win the Grey Cup. They beat Sarnia 3-1. I'm, I'm loving these scores as well. Yeah. Sometimes it seems like it's either low scoring or one team just gets smashed, like clobbered. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why did the West struggle against the East so much? Um, well, I'll just I'll just um, clarify that. Yep, that win over Sarnia uh, was in 1935. Okay. So not only did they win the Grey Cup that year, yeah. but they also got the first team for, uh, win for a Western team over an Eastern team earlier in the season. Um, but you know the reason they were better is um, it's just it's kind of like simple geography, history, economics. You know, just like in the United States. Um, the the population centers were in the east at first, right? Yeah. And then it was westward expansion. And so um, because of that, there were fewer people in the West. There were more um, there were more colleges and universities in the East. And you know, some of the more prominent folks or you know in, in the West, they would go east, you know, to go to university some uh, a lot of the times. They'd play football on those university teams and then a lot of times they'd stay in the east and then they'd end up playing on club teams and so it just you know just sort of uh, you know the, the the way the population centers were it just made for better teams in the east i always imagine that travel would take a big factor on how these players would feel once they arrived in the East as well. Cause I don't think it was a three and a half hour flight like it is now. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Long train rides, even in the West when they played one another, yeah. you know, they had to, they, they had to take trains and, um, and of course that's a good stretch of land, you know, that they, that they had to cover. And, um, and that was one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the, the, the East had an advantage because they also had a, a you know, a, a financial advantage in mm. that, you know, if, if the West was going to play in a great cup, they always had to travel East. So that was one of the things that, um, that, that changed actually after the 1935 victory by the West is the East finally, finally kept its promise and said, okay, we will place, we will start alternating and play great cups in the West as well. Because mm. before that, the um, the Canadian Rugby Union, which was overseeing everything, um, they they were they were pulling a fast one on the West a couple of times where they promised that they were going to have a Grey Cup in the West, and then said, "No, no, no, we can't do it now because the East they don't want to travel or the the players can't get the time off or whatever." But it, it's not any different, of course, for the West. I mean, those yeah. players had to ask for time off from work and everything. So, right, the West really suffered until they won that Great Cup in thirty five. Well, and I'm I'm looking at the list of uh, Great Cups from that era, and the first one ever to come west was the forty third Great Cup in uh, nineteen fifty five. So, uh, yeah. it still it took, took a while. It still yeah. took several years after. 
after Winnipeg won it in 1935. Now we're talking about the 23rd Grey Cup, and uh, you know we're coming <laughs> up. We're we're in triple digits now. <laughs> um, and, and I'm, I'm seeing that that 1935 year, they really only had the Victoria Bisons to play like in league play in Manitoba and they destroyed right. them. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and so, and that team formed specifically for that season. See? Okay. So, yeah. And so what, and so there's a good story behind that team. So the Winnipeg Victoria's, uh, in their history, it was a team that had died out in, I think, I can't remember what year, it was in the late 20s or something, uh, or early 20s, not sure. But anyways, they um, that team had died out, and uh, there was a gentleman named Fred Ritter in Winnipeg. And when when Winnipeg signed all these Americans, he decided that's just not right. There needs to be competition for this team, and my team's going to be all Canadian, gosh mm. darn it. And, and, but, yeah, but, but you got to understand this guy, uh, he, yeah, he's Canadian himself, but he went to Princeton. He, uh, he also, um, he was there at the beginning of the Rough Riders because he was a Rough Rider at one time and he recruited Notre Dame players. I say, yeah. <laughs> to play for the Rough Riders. And so, you know, he was responsible for some of this. He's right? all over the place. <laughs> yeah, but but then he revived the Victorias, and there was a bunch of uh, former Winnipeg, uh, 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 Winnipeg, Winnipeg's players uh, on that Victorias team, and so I imagine there was probably a little bit of disgruntledness going on. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, and, you know, they're bringing in all these Americans. Well, we'll show them. You know, we're the uh, we're the we're the purebloods here, and we will. Uh, and we'll show them how it's how it's done. But of course, the Victoria's just <laughs> not only though did they get trounced by the Winnipeg's, but they got trounced the worst when the Americans didn't play. So in wow. the, they played a yeah they played a three game series. In in that third game, the Americans I, I think one of the Americans played, but the rest of them, um, the best most important important ones in this book actually were out were in uh, Regina, I believe. Uh, scouting the Rough Riders, mm. they weren't even playing, and and the the Winnipeg's beat the Victorias by an even higher score, and it was Canadian material that was playing against them. So thirty nine to one, and uh, yeah, of course they had the Regina Rough Riders in the Western semifinal, so that's what they would have been uh, scouting for. Um, I, I look at the roster of players and. Uh, I try to take myself back to that time, and they almost—they almost seem like uh, comic book characters to me. Like they—they they <laughs> all seem like these super, superhuman characters. That uh, is a time gone by right now. What are, did you have a favorite player or person from this time that you had fun researching and learning about? Well, you know, uh, I'll, I'll say first that Fritz Hansen was the the key to the whole thing yeah. and he but he was not uh the most interesting player to me there was actually um two or three others that were most interesting and and um the first was bob fritz the the player coach and um because here's a guy who was ambidextrous and and he actually played through injuries you know, to, oh. to his hand, to his arms and hands, because it didn't matter. He would just, <laughs> other, 
the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and so, you know, he was this tough guy and he was, he was, he led his college team to two conference uh, championships. And, and so, you know, he was, he, he was important and he was a good leader and, and he's, he's really forgotten on that Winnipeg team, but he was their leader. He was the, the coach. And, and he also, um, installed to uh, a new play there for the great cup that, that it was a passing play that actually mm. was the, one of the keys to the win. So he was interesting. Another guy that I find really interesting, his name was um, Bert Oha and his last name is spelled O J A. And uh, he's interesting because he's from, uh, he played, he played for the university of Minnesota. And then he went on and played for a team called the Minnesota All-Stars. Now, I'm, I've been learning more since I wrote this book about the Minnesota All-Stars. And what they were is they were, they were all former golfers. Okay. okay. All, uh, and they played in They were a semi-pro team. Um, and the interesting th- thing was, though, on certain years, they actually some of the players were current University of Minnesota players. So, I don't know. There was some weird stuff going on there about eligibility, I think. But anyways, um, <clears throat> he was the, he was the coach and, and, and captain of the Minnesota all-stars in 1934 when they played the Winnipegs uh, in, you know, up in Canada, which is why he was sought out by uh, the manager there for the Winnipegs. But anyways, um, he was interesting because he was, he was their line coach. He was the best lineman on the team. And um uh, he, his presence was definitely felt because he, he went and watched Hamilton play Sarnia in one of the play-in games for the gray cup. And I think it was a semifinal. Cause I think it was the game right before they played Hamilton. And he went and watched that game. And he said afterward during the great, that during the great cup game, he knew exactly what Hamilton was going to do. Right. And, you know, because he just, you know, he read it and he was, he was all business. Uh, even after a win, it, he would just, he'd be in his locker and he, he, you know, he, you know, he wasn't celebrating it. He was like, we got one more game. So, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, we got another game. So he, he was all business. So I kind of liked that, that guy, he was a good character. And then the, the other guy that really kind of caught me was um, his name was, his name is Lou Edelman and his nickname is Rosie. So it's Rosie Edelman. Mm-hmm. He played for the, the Winnipeg Tammany Tigers and the Winnipeg Tammany Tigers were the precursor to the Winnipeg, Winnipeg Blue Bombers because the Winnipeg Tammany Tigers, what they basically did is sort of reorganize the club into the Winnipeg rugby, rugby club. Okay. And, and, and Lou Edelman goes as far back as the original Winnipeg Tammany Tigers. And he played for them in, in the gray cup in 1928. And of course they didn't win. Um, and they didn't play any, you know, uh, Eastern teams along the way back then it was just East played West at, at the top. So um, he, um, and it, it, they went to that game and they lost and the newspapers just, you know, all oh, these guys are a bunch of intermediates, you know, is what the way they put it. Cause back then intermediate was one level below the top, right? That's an insult. <laughs> it was an insult, right? And, but he stuck with, with football and he was on that 35 gray cup team. And that, and he had been, he had played 17 years, you know, to get, you know, for that great cup. And, you know, just imagine how he felt, right. 
they he and and his fellow teammates and a lot of them were were Canadians that he had played alongside for a while and they go to Hamilton and they beat Hamilton in their house and yeah. and you know just the and and there was some stories afterward about how he celebrated once he got back to Winnipeg like he you know they exchanged <laughs> sweaters you know after the after yeah. the game and he so he had a Hamilton sweater and he comes back and one of their big sponsors was had as an association with the grain exchange there up in Winnipeg and they go out on the trading floor and he he comes in late and makes a big entrance and he's got his Hamilton uh sweater with him and he throws it out down on the floor and tromps all over it and gets a big roar out of the crowd it was you know i mean this meant a lot to rosie adelman and so you know he was he's some he's a guy that i kind of connected with so winnipeg beating hamilton in their house that That sounds sounds familiar familiar. (laughs) (laughs) that was just a few months ago in in december at uh, tim hortons field but this is of course from the time before uh tim hortons ever existed uh i love going back in the time back in this time machine and reading about this this history and uh, it, it's just fascinating to know how important Americans are because the, the history of CFL, it's very proud to people in Canada and across the league. But the Americans coming across and assisting the West in winning a great mm-hmm. cup, bringing the forward pass, bringing different offensive systems here. It's it's so amazing to read these stories. So well done on putting this book together. Oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was it was it was a love uh, relationship with with the writing. And you know, when I got done, I, I don't know if you saw the dedication in the book is actually dedicated to the guys that 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 played on that team because I just felt like you know. <sighs> You just you just feel like you're finally doing them some justice by t- by telling yeah. the story. So. Yeah, and I, I just man, it, it, like I said, comic book characters. I, I love the illustrations in here, mm-hmm. and it it really feels like a hearty book. And I, I can feel the the passion and the uh, and the work coming through your words. And I I love those newspaper quotes. The way they wrote about the game, <laughs> then they yeah. they would describe the game in such vivid detail, and sometimes at the end it would be like a scoreless tie and you're like the words made it sound like the best game of all time (laughs) if that happened now fans would be so bored and mad (laughs) right right and you know back then they and 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 back then they appreciated the punt you know yeah they did (laughs) they totally did because sometimes they'd punt on first down and yeah. in the Canadian game, they'd punt, they'd punt it on the same down, right? Because they'd receive yeah. the ball, and then they would kick it right back. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'll, I'll ask you one more question about that era. How did you – and you, you mentioned, you know, the Grey Cup finally started traveling west eventually. Mm-hmm. How else did you find that Winnipeg's win changed the game a little bit for Canadian football or even just in the West, if it really just comes down to that. Well, it, it definitely changed the game in terms of imports, in terms of bringing Americans, because it based, they basically, they put a sort of a stop on it. Um, not a stop, but they, ah. they put, they put the brakes on it. They, they changed the residency rule 
so that I think they had to have been there a whole year or something. Okay. Um, and so, so, you know, these guys with the blue bombers, they stayed there then. Right. So they, they, they just, be, and, you know, be, and some of them became Canadian citizens. And so, um, <clears throat> and, and it actually affected the rough riders the next year, because the next year, the rough riders, I think would have played for the gray cup, but they were disqualified because they didn't meet the residency requirements. With the uh... I think I have that right. I, I don't have it in the book, but I read that later. So, R.C. Christensen, the author of Border Boys, How Americans from Border Colleges Helped Western Canada to Win a Football Championship. Where do we, uh, where do we get this book in our hands? Sure. Well, it's, it's published through Amazon. So obviously it's available okay. through Amazon and Amazon Canada. So uh, those two outlets. Um, it's also available um, it, at you know other places like Barnes and Noble and any any other you know book online booksellers because it's yeah. got an, an extended distribution that okay, way. Okay, cool. So um, you should be able to find it pretty much anywhere. Nice. And do you have any other projects on the go? I do. Um, I don't like to talk too much about the That's projects. That's all right. I'm on, That's all right. But let's just say I'm still I'm staying in the Minnesota uh, yeah. area, and uh, just because if I want to go look at any physical stuff then it's close by and i can go to a library archive somewhere and you know things like that that's very cool well ryan thanks for taking the time to come on uh on the podcast and talk about some of this story in that era of football okay thank you very much i appreciate it Thank you to R.C. Christensen for coming on the Two and Out podcast to talk about his book, Border Boys. You know, after after I hit stop on the record button, I asked if there were any other stories that that you like in the book and are close to your heart. And there's you'll have to read the book to get the rest of it, but it does involve pro wrestling and football. Two of those topics, very close to my heart. So make sure you get Border Boys because that story is in the book. You can get it wherever good books are sold. This episode of Two and Out is brought to you by Park Power. And in Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski. And we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more about Park Power at parkpower.ca. I'm Travis Curra. Brazilian Thai will be back this week as we get you ready for week two of the CFL season. Man, I'm fired up that we had a bunch of football to watch this weekend. Rate, review, and subscribe to your favorite podcatcher, And we'll talk to you later this week. Thanks for listening. Find more great shows like this at CF Pod Network on Twitter.